book of Romans, we're in chapter 6. I attempted last week to cover the whole chapter and failed. Come on, I've been doing pretty good. What do you mean again? I'm getting better. So we'll be picking up in verse 14. If anybody needs a Bible uh, to follow along, if you just lift your hand, the ushers are uh, walking up and down the aisles looking for people. They're just overflowing. They really want to hand them out. So um, if you need a Bible, just raise a hand and they'll discreetly slip one to you so you can follow along. Romans chapter 6. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to the church at Rome that he wrote with the purpose of explaining to them what is the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And and of course, we know that the word gospel, it's a word that means good news. And there's a lot of confusion about what exactly is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wrote this letter with the intent of making it plain and clear to all that would read and hear what exactly it is to be a Christian or to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now in the first five chapters of the book, Paul dealt with the subject of justification. He presents first of all the evidence that the whole world, including you and I, Here tonight, that we are all guilty before God and that we're all born into a state of condemnation, that eternally we are headed towards separation from God an eternal destination of death, that we are in a state of separation presently, that we're out of fellowship with God, that we're alienated from the life that he designed us for and intends us to live that we're separated from that, and that we are personally without means of justification. That there is no way for us to find our way back into God's good graces by any means that we can produce in and of ourselves. We're without means of justification. But then Paul, after laying down that black, dark, bad news for us, He tells us the good news. He tells us that God himself stepped into our world, clothed in human flesh, and that he, by himself, fulfilled the righteousness of the law on our behalf, and then absorbed the penalty for our sins upon himself, upon the cross, Therefore, making a way whereby you and I can now be justified before God. That our sins can be forgiven, completely washed away, past, present, and future, as though they never existed, and so that God sees us as though we were Jesus Christ. He traded places with us. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, and then He absorbed the penalty that your sin caused He took it so that we might obtain the righteousness that he lived while he walked upon the earth. And therefore, we are justified before a holy God through Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? 
The issue of our salvation was completely dealt with on the cross by Jesus Christ. Now, in chapters 6 and 7, where we find ourselves presently, Paul is no longer dealing with the subject of justification, that is, our being made righteous before God, but now he's dealing with the subject of our sanctification. And if you were here last week, you know, we began talking about the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification was an act that took place in an instant that declares you and I righteous. But sanctification is a work that takes a lifetime that is actually making us righteous. Justification declared it so in our standing before God is complete. Sanctification is now us catching up to what God already made us. Do you understand? And it's a lifelong work of God by His Spirit in us, changing and transforming us into the image of His Son, Christ. It's a lifelong process of God working in us to transform us. Now, before we were saved, when we were born after our nature, or our Adam nature, you know, that natural man, the old man that Paul talks about there in the early verses of chapter 6. The, the enemy that we had was sin. The enemy of our salvation was sin. Not the action of sins that we commit, you know, as a verb, you know, an action word, something that we do and commit with our hands. But our problem was the condition of sin. Singular. Something that we inherited from birth as a noun, a thing. It's something that we were born with. And the condition of sin present within us is the reason why we sin behaviorally. The reason why we sin is because we're born as sinners. That's what Paul's very clear about. We inherited at birth. Therefore, because of this curse that we were born under, we were bound under sin's presence within us, sin's power over us, and sin's penalty towards us. The problem was all rooted in and surrounded by sin. It was sin. That was the enemy of our salvation. Now, on the cross, when Jesus laid down his life on our behalf, Jesus defeated sin. He broke its power, and he absorbed its penalty, and therefore we can be justified. However, here, as we talk about the subject of sanctification... What we discover is that the enemy of our salvation, which was sin, is also the enemy of our sanctification. That just as sin was the thing that hindered us from coming into God's presence, sin is also the thing that hinders us from being transformed and made like unto him, being sanctified. So in verses 1 through 13 that we covered last time, Paul told us that when we were baptized into Christ, that we were identifying with his death. That symbolically, as we went under the water, we were being crucified with Christ. Mystically, spiritually, practically, we were being joined to him there. And our old man, that Adam that lives within us, died there on the cross at the moment that we were baptized. Therefore, the power of sin was broken within us. Just as Jesus defeated sin and broke its power on the cross, the power of sin is broken in our lives at the time that we identify with Christ in baptism. 
And therefore, we're set free from the power of sin. Just like it says back up in verses 6 and verse 7 of chapter 6 there. He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. But now, as we pick up in verse 14, what do we need to know about our enemy, sin, as it relates to our new life now in Christ. Because listen carefully, and I think we all understand this perfectly, that even though the power and the penalty of sin was dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross, sin is still very much present with us, isn't it? Maybe you've discovered that to be so. Though the Bible declares that we are positionally free And practically, the power of sin has been broken and its penalty has been absorbed. The presence of sin is still there. The temptation still pulls us. There are things that allure us and draw us away. So how does sin now hinder our sanctification and how do we deal with it as Christians? That's what Paul is attacking here in the second half of chapter 6. What we discover very early in our Christianity is that although the power of sin is broken in our lives, it is still a very venomous enemy. Isn't it? Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. He begins this section by telling us that we've been given the most glorious privilege known to humankind. He says that sin shall not have dominion over you. That's a powerful promise from God. That's a powerful truth if you really stop and think about it. Now, sin absolutely has dominion over unsaved humanity. There's really no question about it. Billions of dollars are made in the tobacco industry annually because sin has dominion over unsaved humanity. Amen? Billions of gallons of alcohol are sold and consumed in the world, you know, on a yearly basis because sin definitely has dominion over unsaved humanity. I mean, it's such an absurd case for me to even try to make. Anybody with a pulse understands and knows that sin has dominion over unsaved humanity. It's just a fact of existence. But the Bible declares authoritatively that to the child of God, To you and I that have been blood-bought and baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, that the power of sin has been definitely broken within our lives. What a glorious privilege that we've received. What an incredible thing that God has done for us, that he can look at us and he can say that sin shall no longer have dominion over you. And so therefore, because sin doesn't any longer have that place of authority within us whereby we must obey it, because we're its slaves, Paul says, being set free from it, you should avoid it. That's what he says in verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? He says, God forbid. You've been set free from this. You've been given this glorious privilege that the world cries out for and doesn't know how to obtain. And he says, how foolish you would be now to go and re-embrace these things that you've now been set free from. You've been set free from it. You're free from sin. Avoid it. 
You say, why? Why is God so serious about sin? I mean, why is he so restrictive? I mean, he's such a prude sometimes, it seems. I mean, doesn't, doesn't he know? I mean, he's, he's just living in the leave it to beaver era. You know, he's just, he's back in the, the 50s, you know, and it's just archaic, God's attitude towards sin. I mean, he really needs to get with it. He's old-fashioned. Or maybe he's just cruel. He, he's placed these desires and these drives within us, and yet then he tells us that we're not to satisfy or fulfill those things, and he calls it sin if we do. I mean, what's God's big problem with sin? Why is it that we're to avoid it as newborn believers? Well, Paul gives his reasons, first of all, because he tells us sin ensnares us and enslaves us. Sin ensnares us and enslaves us. Look at verse 16. He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. He uses this word servant or slave describing what happens, how sin grips a person's life. He says that they become a slave to the sin. But he's speaking in the context of believers, people that have come to Christ and have had the power of sin broken in their lives. And yet he still uses that same word as being a slave to sin, even to someone who's saved. Well, what does this mean? How are we enslaved by sin even after we're born again? Well, the word that Paul uses there for servant or slave, as you have it in the Bible, is the word doulos, or bond slave. And it's a very interesting choice of words that Paul uses there when he talks about a slave. Because there were different types of slave, but a bond servant was a very specific type of slave. See, in, in Hebrew law, if someone was a slave in Jewish culture and Jewish law, Exodus chapter 21, you can read about it in the Bible. If someone was a slave because they couldn't pay their debts or because of a certain situation that found them where they were in slavery, they were only to be slaves for six years. And after six years, the master or the owner was obligated to set that slave free. But that slave then had a choice. Because if the slave thought to themselves, well, you know what, I got married to someone else who's a slave in my master's house, and my master takes pretty good care of me, and I really don't know where I'm going to go, and my life is really here, then he could go back to his master, and he could say, I'm making the decision, the choice to become a bondservant or a doulos. And in that circumstance, the master would then take that slave to the door of his house, and he would take an awl and a hammer. And he would pierce the ear of that servant and he would be given an earring that would be a symbol that he was now a bond slave, which meant a slave by choice for life. That's what a doulos was. That's how Paul identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ in the beginning of all his letters. He says, Paul, an apostle or a servant of Jesus Christ, a bond slave, a doulos. I've been set free but I have no place better to go, so I choose to give him my life. And now Paul says, beware, believer, beware, Christian, in your attitude and your behavior towards sin, because you're in danger of being enslaved by it just as a bond slave. You've been set free. Don't now make the decision to say, but I want to still be under the bondage that I was in under those circumstances. You're enslaved 
by your own choice. A slave must obey the will of his master. It's not an issue of if he's going to obey or when he's going to obey, but it's only a matter of how long is it going to take for him to do the thing that his master told him to do. Well, well, how does sin ensnare a person? I mean, I understand practically what he's speaking of theologically that it can happen, but how does it happen? How does sin ensnare a believer or anybody for that matter? Well, very simply, it plays upon our natural lusts and it seeks to entice us to yield to its commands. In James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, James describes it with this language. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, that's exactly how Adam and Eve were tempted and ensnared by sin in the very beginning. You recall the story. Satan came to Eve. And there he spoke to her. He observed her. He watched her. He saw and he studied her the same way that he does with all of us. And then he began to sow thoughts into her mind about the authority of God's word. And then he tested her as to her knowledge of God's word. And after doing all of his research research and, and studying her thoroughly, then he finally came in and he spoke the word. And he said, hath God said that you shall not eat from every tree in the garden? And Eve gives her reply and then Satan sows his lie. He says to her in Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, he says, you shall not surely die. You shall not surely die if you partake of this fruit. But rather, in verse 5, he says, God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He he plays upon the natural tendencies and desires that she would have being a free-born, free-willed human being. First of all, hey, who doesn't want to know? He says, you'll know good and evil. You'll be in the know. You'll have the higher knowledge. What happens when you see someone telling a secret? The first thing in you, you say, well, what are they saying? Well, especially if it might be something that's about you. You say, I want to know, or something that concerns you. When you see the bosses at work putting their heads together, and you see them, mm, and you see what you try to read their facial expressions, what happens? you want to know? You start to ask questions because it's a natural tendency within us that we just want to know what's going on. I used to hate it when my parents would tell secrets. Me and Georgia actually have our own language. It's a, I don't get into it, but we can tell secrets. And our kids, you can just see it in them when we start talking like that, that they just want to know what it is that we're talking about. It's just a natural thing. And Satan holds it over and he says, oh, see, God's withholding from you. You don't know. You could know more than what you know. Well, we also want to grow. We want to evolve. There's something within us that wants to reach higher. We want to be better. We want to be stronger and faster and more intellectual. There's something within us that we just want to grow beyond what our natural capabilities are. And that was something that Satan held before her there when he said to to them that you will be as gods. You will become something greater. You will morph into a higher state of being. And it was something that played upon her lust. And then finally, we all want to see. 
We all want to have insight. We all want our eyes to be opened so that we can understand the deeper things or the hidden things or the mysteries of the universe. And so Satan held before her this temptation playing upon the natural inclinations that she would have. And he tempted her to sin. Now in verse 6, it says that Eve saw that the fruit of that tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. And right there you see the recipe for justifying sin. She looked at that thing and she said, well, hey, it's good for food. Why did God make it if he didn't intend for us to eat it? Why did God give me this drive if he didn't intend for me to just fulfill it? It doesn't make sense that God would do such a thing. He's a sensible God. And so it's good for food, she saw. It's also pleasant to the eyes. It looks good. There's, there's something. Why does it have to look so good? Why couldn't it look like broccoli? You know, why couldn't it, you know, why, why does it have to be so colorful and so boisterous and, and so succulent looking that you just want to sink your teeth into it? If God didn't want us to eat it, I mean, certainly that this is just doesn't make sense. We misheard God or misunderstood God or something. And certainly if it's something that's desired to make one wise, well, who doesn't want to be wise? It's good to be wise. And so the lust that she had being twisted by Satan, plus the opportunity she had to justify what she was seeing and what she was thinking, she fell into this temptation and she sinned. She gave into this thing. Now, as with all sin, and this is why sin is enticing, is that the treat was presented in its full. What you'll get, what you'll experience, what you'll feel was put right out there for her to observe and to consider and to even sample in her mind as she considered doing this thing. The treat was presented in its full. But the terms and conditions were strangely neglected when Satan came to her with that. In fact, he twisted and he lied about it and said, that's not going to happen to you. How many times have we sinned? Because we might know the natural, potentially bad outcome, but we say, it's not going to happen to me. It's exactly what Satan said to her. It's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. The terms and conditions of her disobedience were ignored, twisted, and downplayed. And when temptation comes to any of us, when any of us has the opportunity to sin, even as Christians, we only see the treat but often we don't see the terms. It happens all the time. I printed this up. Maybe you read this. This is from Fox News. A computer game retailer revealed that it legally owns the souls of thousands of online shoppers thanks to a clause in the terms and conditions agreed to by online shoppers. The retailer, British firm GameStation, added the immortal soul clause to the contract signed before making any online purchases earlier this month. It states that customers grant the company the right to claim their soul. Quotes, by placing an order, v- order via this website on the first day of the fourth month of the year 2010, you agree to grant us a non-transferable option to claim for now and forevermore your immortal soul. Should we wish to exercise this option, you agree to surrender your immortal soul and claim, or and any claim you may have on it within five working days of receiving written notification from Gain Station or one of its doodly authorized minions. 
GameStation's form also points out, quotes, that we reserve the right to search for such notice, or I'm sorry, serve such notice in six-foot-high letters of fire. However, we can accept no liability for any loss or damage caused by such an act. Serious. If you, A, do not believe you have an immortal soul, B, have already given it to another party, or C, do not wish to grant us such license, please click the link below to nullify this subclause and proceed with your transaction. The terms of service were updated on April Fool's Day as a gag. But the retailer did so to make a very real point. No one reads the online terms and conditions of shopping. And companies are free to insert whatever language they want into the documents. And while all shoppers, and then he goes on to give some statistics, but let me give you a resolution. The company noted that it would not be enforcing the ownership rights and planned to email customers nullifying any claim on their soul. I mean, I laughed when I read it because who reads those things? You know, you're shopping online, you're downloading the latest version of iTunes for your computer, you see the little thing that says, click it if you agree with the terms and conditions, and then you, you like scroll down, you're like, oh, it's only a paragraph. And then you like, no, it's like 40 paragraphs. I agree, you know, and you just click the thing. <laughs> Nobody ever reads the terms and conditions. Well, the same thing is true when temptation comes. See, the treat is held out for you, right there to behold, to sample, to consider, and to taste. But the terms and conditions are ignored. Often, we all experience this feeling and this sentiment throughout regular things that we do in life. You buy a car, and it's, ooh, you see yourself in it, and it's shiny. And, ooh, the, you picture yourself driving at night with the dash lights glowing, you know, and the sunroof on a sunny day, you know, and the beach and all this stuff. And, and you just, that's all you see. The treat is held right there, and you're like, wow, yeah, sports car. But then the terms, you get the bill the first month, second month, you know, you got to put collision on it and then, you know, all this stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, that, that feeling of ecstasy that you were experiencing in your mind when you were considering the transaction, now it's completely nullified and then some by the terms and conditions. 60 months. We've been there. We understand. Now, once you commit, whether it be to the car, whether it be the terms and conditions or whether it be to an act of iniquity that's held out before you that you're tempted to do, you must comply with the terms and conditions. You're a slave. There's no escape. Sin never makes sense if you look at the terms and conditions. If you were to take a piece of paper, and on the top, on one side you wrote pros, and on the other side you wrote cons, and then you began to list in the pros and the cons of some act of sin that the Bible declares, something that the Bible says will destroy you. It never makes sense. Should I have this adulterous affair? Why I should? Well, I really want to. And I really think it would be exciting. It'll make me feel young again. I'll experience pleasure. And the list pretty much ends there. I mean, everything else kind of falls under one of those kind of subheadings. But then you go to the other side of the page and you think, why I shouldn't? Well, if I do this, I'm going to lose my spouse, most likely, and my kids. That, that whether it's a husband or a wife, that, that most likely my marriage isn't going to weather this storm. And so right now, I'm just agreeing right off the bat the terms and conditions, and I'm throwing that out the door. That I'm throwing out my privilege and my ability to go into the room at night and look into the faces of my kids and see the innocence on it. 
And I know that I'm taking their future and I'm putting a big dent in it at least and destroying it most likely as I do this act. But it's exciting and I want to. That this is going to absolutely blow my credibility. That my integrity will be botched forever and that I'll never be able to hold down any real spiritual position of, uh, of, of you know, substance because my credibility is no good. The relationship can't last. I mean, it, it's being built on something so shifty as a feeling and a fleeting emotion. I know this thing isn't going to last. That I'm destroying the future of the rest of my family. That I'm completely destroying my capacity for joy and peace. That there's going to be a hollowness in my eyes for the rest of my life. And that I'm ruining my fellowship with God. I can't ask Him to bless the relationship or anything that comes out of it. And most likely it's going to cost me half my paycheck for the rest of my life. And the list goes on and on and on. But yet we see it every day. The treat is held out. But the terms and conditions are neglected. And once the sin is ensued upon you're a slave forever to the terms and conditions you're bound to it you can never calculate the terms do you think eve if she could see into the future and see what her act of just taking one bite of that fruit would throw upon the whole human race that if in her mind she could fast forward to today and she could see everything in the world and all of its problems and all of the scum and the rot of society and the poverty and the oppression and the darkness that exists upon the souls of men and that it all goes back to that one innocent act that was justified by something that would be good. Do you think she still would have done it? But you can never see the full effect and you can never understand how dark the terms really are all she was told is that she would die she was told the end of that path is death but what she couldn't see was all the destruction that would come along the way sin entices then it ensnares and then it enslaves and paul says beware your attitude towards it it should be god forbid that i should sin and stain the freedom that i've been given from this darkness But then in verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but that you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Notice that. He says that you've obeyed from the heart. That something happened in you, that when you got saved and Jesus Christ moved into your your life, that there was something there where your desire changed allegiance. Your desire was, you know, bound to sin that you wanted to sin but something in the heart happened and now your desire is to do what's right and so your obedience is from the heart it isn't an obedience of you know the the broken will like oh okay i won't do it anymore but there's something in you now that says no lord i want what's right and that's how you know when you're really saved because your desire changes your behavior might not catch up right away You might find that the grip of sin is still somewhat strong. You might find yourself stumbling over things, but you will notice that your desire has changed. That there's a will within you that wants to do what's right, and it won't allow you to do what's wrong. He says, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. 
In verse 19, Paul gives to us the second reason why God would have us to avoid sin and why it's wise for us to avoid it. And the second thing is because sin encroaches and entwines. He uses this word in there. He says that you have yielded your members as servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. The first and most prominent byproduct or fruit, if you would, of sin in the life of a believer is more sin. That once you break in, once you give in and you yield in some area of your life to sin, the fruit of that is immediately going to be a stronger grip of other sin within your life. Do you remember before you were saved, you know, your BC days, your, you know, your youthful years? Do you remember the first time maybe that you smoked a cigarette? You told yourself that you never would. As a child, you looked at it and you heard your parents say, that's disgusting, you know, and you looked at it and you said, that's disgusting, you know, and you saw someone, you know, breathe in the smoke and cough, you know, and then put it out with their feet and you smelled your aunt's breath, you know, and you were just like, oh man, and you were repulsed by it as a child. I'm never going to do that. And you promised yourself, I'm never going to do it. But then life happens and you grow up and there you are in a group of friends, you know, and it comes your way and you don't want to be uncool, you know, but you don't want to inhale and you don't really know what to do. And there's this whole conflict of turmoil going inside. Well, should I do it? Shouldn't I? You know, it could be alcohol. It could be a joint. You know, it could be anything. But there's this wrestling going on as I promised myself I'd never do this. But then you say, well, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm not going to inhale. I'm just going to do this one. And then you do it. You just kind of, you give in, you yield your members. For that moment, and you give in to it. And then the guilt. You go home and you say, man, you know, I said I'd never do that. I I swore I'd never smoke, you know, and you get angry at yourself. I can't believe I broke down, you know, my will just, ah, you know, and you make a promise to yourself, well, I'm never doing it again. (coughs) I'm not a smoker, don't worry, I'm sick. But then the second time you get into the situation, you find that it's a little bit easier. Well, you know, I did it last time and I got over it and I didn't get addicted. I can control this thing. It's, it's okay. It's no big deal. And so this time you do it a second time and it's a little bit harder to say no. Your resistance is broken down a little bit more. And you still feel kind of bad, but not quite as bad as you did before. And, you know, now you've kind of moved from, you know, the, the breaking of that promise to now, well, okay, well, I'm just experimenting. I'm, I'm trying to understand why I don't like it. And so you do it just a little bit more. I'm just experimenting. But then the next thing you know, it becomes a habit. Well, this is just something that I do socially. This is just something that I do on the weekends. It's something that I do when the situation calls for it. But it isn't part of my, you know, lifestyle or my being. But it isn't long before it does become that. And you succumb to it in shame. And then that habit becomes a lifestyle and it becomes a part of your identity. And you find that that sin, that thing that just touched you at the beginning, was like that vine that just wraps itself around you. It encroaches iniquity unto iniquity. And it opens the door for more sin. Satan just wants a toehold in your life. And if Satan can get a toehold, it won't be long before he has a foothold. And once he has a foothold, it's inevitable that he will have a stronghold. He'll grab a hold of you in this thing. Georgia and I were just watching uh, the other night. We were watching a documentary on the rise of steroid use in the youth uh, today. 
and we were listening to an interview that was um, given by a guy who used to train with Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the 1970s. And he was describing what it was like for them when things were just first coming out. And he said a phrase that caught, caught me. I'll never forget. He, he said, from the first moment that, that the first drop of steroids hits your bloodstream, he said, it permeates every cell within your being. And you are never the same. And I thought, isn't that what sin does? From the first moment that the first drop hits, it permeates every cell, whether it takes a long time or a short time, and that eventually it will change your life forever. Sin encroaches and entwines. But thankfully for the believer, so does righteousness. That's what Paul goes on to say. He says that you were servants to sin, to iniquity unto iniquity, but even so now, yield your members as servants to righteousness unto holiness. That just as sin has a byproduct, so does righteousness. That when you choose to do what's right, when you choose to use the power that you've been given by the baptism, by the blood, by the salvation you've received, when you engage that power in your life and you choose to do what's right, there's something else that grows within you as well. He says holiness. You say, oh, there you go. Holiness. That's the word. See, that's the problem with you Christians. Holiness. See, when you say holiness, Nick, it just puts this picture in my mind that I, I have to go buy a Snuggie. You know, one of those robes, you know. And, and, and that I have to, you know, kind of, you know, abstain from everything that's, you know, joy and, and everything. And I just have to go live on a mountain and pray for six hours a day. And, and I mean, holiness, Nick. I mean, that's just, ah, I struggle with that. What's the deal here? Listen. You misunderstand what holiness means. Holiness means wholeness. To be holy is to be whole. God wants to complete you. God wants to build you. God wants you to experience life and have an expression of it that is full. That's what God's will is for you. That's what God's trying to invest in you. That's what he's trying to do by this process of sanctification. When you look at Jesus, you see this man that had nothing, this man that you know, there, were, there was no ambition. There was nothing about him that says that we should desire him. He wasn't good looking. There was no personality trait of, you know, that, that made him. It just was that there was a quality of life that where Jesus was, people wanted to be. That if Jesus was in the house, the house was full, and so was the yard, and people were trying to get into the neighborhood. That when Jesus would go on a mountain, there would be multitudes of people on the mountain, and when he would get in a boat to go to the other side, the people would run around the mountain to be there on the other side. They just wanted to be around him. Why? Because there was an expression of life that was emanating from him, and it's the same thing that he wants to give to you. And the path of experiencing that wholeness is to yield yourselves obedient to his word and his commands. You'll see the fruit of holiness. You'll sense the expression of life growing up inside of you and coming out of you. That's God's will for you. That's what happens when you yield yourselves as servants to righteousness unto holiness. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, the writer uses these words. He says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Listen, holiness leads to happiness. Don't let Satan put it in your mind. The holiness means you're going to be some monk living on a mountain wearing a robe with a shaved head, chanting, um, contemplating your navel. Holiness leads to happiness. Do you understand? That's God's will for our lives. 
Sin not only enslaves, it not only encroaches, but sin also embarrasses. Look at verse 21. He says, for what fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. It's a funny thing. The first emotion that Adam and Eve experienced after they sinned was shame. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then in verse 10, it says that when God came to, to you know, look for them in the garden, Adam's reply is God looked for him. It says, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That the first, the most prevalent effect of that sin in their lives, the most immediate effect of it as they gave in and partook of that fruit is that they were ashamed and they were embarrassed. Sin always leaves you ashamed and embarrassed. There's no exception. There's a verse somewhere in the book of Numbers that says, Be sure and know that your sin will find you out. That from the moment you give in, the moment you yield, the moment you go after sin, it becomes to come after you. And you can spend your energy, your resources, your time running from it, trying to bury it, trying to hide it, but ultimately that sin at some point is going to catch you. It's going to find you out. And you will taste and experience the shame. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he ran for a year and a half. For a year and a half, he ran. He tried everything he could to cover it over. But the Bible says that he that seeks to cover his transgression shall not prosper. You cannot get away from it. And when it finally comes out, it's finally exposed. Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David's whole existence began to deteriorate. His whole kingdom became to, began to crash down. The rise of this powerful young man that God blessed and invested in his life. And he gave in to that sin. And you see the effects of it upon himself and upon his family and upon his kingdom and upon the nation and upon the future of Israel. Because David gave in to this sin. Shame and embarrassment comes upon David because of the sin. You read the story of Samson, this man with this great, incredible strength that no one could understand where it came from. Unprecedented in all of Israel that such a ruler would have such authority and such power. And yet he couldn't control the pull of sin in his life. And he yielded just one too many times to iniquity. And he ends up at the end of his life with his eyes poked out. Weakly grinding at the mill. Embarrassed and ashamed because of the effects of sin in his life. It's interesting to me that we live in a period of church history, a time in, in our generation where Christians are not ashamed of the things that they were saved out of. Very, very rarely do you hear people speaking contemptuously upon the things that they were saved out of, but rather they boast of them. People talk about how much they could drink. They talked about they glorify the sins of their past. And in many cases, they still do them without any feeling of remorse. They're far from obeying from the heart. But mostly they just put on an appearance in the flesh. And they're not ashamed of it at all. 
I always wonder about someone that professes to be saved, but that they're not ashamed of the things that they were saved out of. Paul says, what fruit did you have in the things whereof you are now ashamed? We ought to be ashamed of our past. We ought to look at the things that we did before we knew Christ and say, God, I wish I could have been saved out of it sooner. I wish I never had to experience it. I can't imagine the effects that it's had on me. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Nevertheless, sin embarrasses. It ensnares and enslaves. It entwines. It embarrasses. And Paul asks the questions. He says, what fruit did you have? And ask yourself that question, Christian. What fruit did you have when you gave yourself to that iniquitous lifestyle in your past? What good thing came out of your sinful behavior before? And what makes you think that now as a child of God that good things are going to come out of your life if you yield yourselves to sin even after the power of it has been broken in you? It doesn't make sense. But rather, contrasting that, he says, verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. That now if you choose, if you take this choice that God's given you, this power that he has imparted to you to have victory over sin in your life, that only good is going to come from that. You're going to actually bear fruit in your lives from it. There's going to be fruit. What is fruit? It's, it grows on a tree and it edifies the people around it. It brings a delightness of the heart. When you pass an apple orchard and you see ripe and delicious apples upon it, there's something in you that just longs to go and partake of it. You just want to be around those trees. And God says, this is the kind of life I want you to live, that you're a blessing and a refreshing to others. I want you to bear fruit. God says, when you yield yourself to me, that's what I'm going to make you. You're going to bear fruit. You had no fruit before. But you will have fruit if you yield yourself to me. And then finally, in verse 23, in the last verse there, the final reason why we should avoid sin at all costs as Christians is because sin embalms. It embalms. He says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Now, wages are something that you earn. You put in your time and you get your check. Right? And, and, and if you sin, sin has wages and you will reap the wages of what you have worked for. The wages of that sin is death. It leads to death. He shows us the end of the road. He says, regardless of what happens between here and there, there's going to be death. But then he contrasts it by saying that the gift of God is eternal life. Now, a gift is not wages. That's not something that you worked for. It had absolutely nothing to do with you at all. It's something that was purchased on your behalf and then extended to you freely. And what is it that's given to you? Life. Eternal life. That a billion years from now, you'll look back to talk about how Jesus Christ saved you from the sin that had you headed for an eternal destination of hell. That a trillion years from now, you'll look and you'll still see the scars that are in his hand and, and in his feet. The only man-made things in heaven will be the wounds, the scars that are in Christ. And you'll look at those things and you'll say, it was for my sin that he was pierced. It was for my transgression that he was bruised. He did it all for me. As we close, sin was the enemy of our salvation, the thing that kept us from coming. And sin is the enemy of our sanctification. It's the, it's the thing that will hinder you 
from growing in your relationship with God. It will hinder you from coming into the fullness of what God wants to do in your life. It will hinder His plan. The Bible says that this is the will of God for you in Christ, even your sanctification. It says in Thessalonians that this is God's will for you, is that you would be sanctified holy. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of Christ Jesus. That God is committed to working in your life to bring forth this fruit. To make you like Christ. To make you a refreshing to others. God's committed to sanctifying you. And his desire is that you should be free. That's his desire. See, we read about being a servant of righteousness. Being a slave to righteousness. But see, you've been purchased by him to be set free. The slavery of God is freedom. What did Jesus say? John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Jesus said this. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. And if the son, therefore, shall set or make you free, you shall be free indeed. That the desire that God has for you in your life is that you should be free. That sin shall not have dominion over you. Its power has been broken in your life. Praise the Lord. That when you go home tonight, you don't have to succumb to that sin. You have the power to say no. You've been given the authority and the power by the blood of Jesus Christ to say no to that sin. And to not be given into its bondage. And Jesus came to break the power of sin in your life. Now, after a study like this, there are two possibilities. There's one possibility is that you are free, but that you're living like a slave. You've come to Christ. You've put your trust in him. You're saved. You've been given that gift. But yet you've made yourself a bond slave, a bond servant to sin. You've gone back to the old master. You've yielded your instruments as servants to unrighteousness. Like it says in verse 13, he says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. The word instruments is the word weapons. That you've taken your weapons, you've taken the the treasures of who you are, and you yield them as instruments of unrighteousness. You've taken your lungs, your air drive, the thing that feeds and fuels your body, and you've inhaled pollutants with them. You've yielded it to, to iniquity. You've taken the thirst drive that that God's given you to enjoy, you know, and, and refresh and satisfy yourself. And you've polluted it with alcohol and you've put things in through your kidneys and through your liver, polluting and destroying, yielding it to iniquity. You've taken your eyes, the instrument, the weapon of your eyes, and you've yielded it to impurity. You've set before your eyes things that defile the mind and thus your mind, the weapon of your mind has been yielded to fantasy. You've given in to fantasy and you've allowed it to corrupt and pollute you. And then you've yielded your hands to immorality. You've yielded your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Though you're free, you can come back. But the Bible says that God's spirit will not always strive with man. Maybe there's some of you here tonight and God has been speaking to you for maybe over the course of several months now, God has been speaking to your heart and telling you that you need to get free from this. Maybe over and over again, you hear a message on the radio or a message here at church or you hear it in a conversation that you're having with a friend or just the thought comes into your mind at a random time that God speaks to you and he says, you need to put down this sin and his spirit is striving with you. 
His desire for you is to take something out of your life and break its power over you so that you might be free from it and yield yourself unto God that you might have your fruit. And it's God's will. But the Bible says that His Spirit will not always strive with you. That there will come a time in your life if you continue to ignore and put off the plea of God's Spirit within you that He will just say, okay, fine, have it your way. Be a bond slave. Let that thing rule over you. You say, but Nick, I've tried. I've tried. It's not working. I've tried to be free from it. And it's not happening. Listen, you can't do it by yourself. That's why the Bible says that we're to confess our sins one to another. It's not for shame and embarrassment. It's so that there can be help, support, accountability, and prayer. That's what God wants to do. He wants to break the power of it. But sometimes there has to be an act, a reaching out on your behalf and saying, I need to be set free from this. I don't want to experience the dark shadow of a life where I'm saved, but I've yielded and now I'm imprisoned. Maybe you need to talk with one of the pastors after the service. We'll go to Jesus together. We'll cry out to him for deliverance. And the Bible says that he will not ignore the prayer that's offered to him in sincerity and brokenness. Maybe you need to make yourself accountable to those people that you're linked to in the body, a spouse or a group of friends, and you need to say, listen, this is my struggle, and it's real, and it's bringing me down, it's dragging me in, and I need you to pray for me. I need you to check up on me. I need to be open with you about the struggle that I'm having because I don't want to be given over to it. If you bury it and say, I'm just going to deal with it myself, I guarantee you, you'll come back in a month and you'll still be struggling. Get it under the blood. If you get it under the blood, it's automatic. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Its power will be broken. Listen, you might be free, but you're living like a servant. God would have you be free. Please don't leave here in a state of bondage. Because you're crippling yourself and you're crippling the body of Christ. The days are critical and we need you to be strong. It's God's will for your life, even your sanctification, that you should bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. The other possibility is that you could be a slave, but yet you think you're free. You haven't yet come to Christ and asked him to save you of your sins. You're still trying to do it on your own. You're still trying to fulfill the works. You're still trying to be good enough to satisfy God through your efforts. And thus you've appeased your conscience through your church-going efforts and through your humanitarian outreach and the things that you do. But yet you have yet to surrender to the righteousness of Christ. You have yet to be justified before God. The Bible says, don't be deceived. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. And if you have yet to call upon Jesus Christ to justify you, then though you think you're free, the Bible says you're still the servant of sin. I would encourage you, see the end of the road. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The pastors will be down here at the front at the end. If anybody wants to come forward after the song and just pray or say, pray for me. Let's go to Jesus together. His will for you is that you be free, that you be saved. In Jesus' name, let's all stand. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Lord, we know that you're not saying these things because you want to restrain us. You're not trying to restrict us or keep us back. 
Lord, your will for us isn't that we not experience or that we not be enlightened or that we not be wise or that we be suppressed. Lord, as we see Jesus, we know exactly what you want for us. Lord, we pray that you would finish the work that you started. I pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, that's bound. For anyone here tonight that feels that hopeless grip of sin in their lives. That they yielded, perhaps they were tempted, drawn away. And now they don't know how to get back. Lord, I pray that tonight you, the great shepherd, that you, the hound of heaven, Lord, that you would reach out, that you would speak, that you would give that plea into the heart of anyone here. Lord, that they would be free. And so we pray, Lord. Your word says that you're powerful. Your word says that you're the God of all flesh and that nothing is too hard for you. Your word says that your word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That there's nothing, Lord, that can keep you from doing what you desire to do. The Bible says that love never fails. And Lord, we know that your love will never fail us. And so, Lord, whatever the need is here tonight, whether it's freedom, whether it's salvation, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your love and that you would win. Lord, we plead for your mercies. And we pray for the power of your spirit to fall upon us now. Anoint us, Lord, as we sing to you. In Jesus' name.